Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the river's water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. And this other companion text that I've been using since the first of the year in Psalms 92, those who are planted in the house of the Lord. Why planted in the house of the Lord? Because that's where the river is at. The river of Psalms 1 is in the house of the Lord. There's a river that flows from the throne of God right through this place. And those who are planted in the house of the Lord by that river shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. The word flourish comes to us from a 13th century French word that means to blossom like a flower. It means to grow vigorously and make steady progress, to boom, to prosper, to thrive, to fly high, or to expand. What God said is when you are planted by this river, this is your expectation in life. This is what he intends to have happen, that your life will blossom, grow vigorously, make steady progress. It will boom, prosper, thrive, fly high, expand. And I want you to please notice that God doesn't specify or limit that promise to a particular area of your life. Why doesn't he? We limit it. Most people who read this in churches would limit that to the spiritual dimension of their life and say that's where the promise that we're going to flourish is supposed to be manifested. It's in our spiritual relationship with God. Our spirit man is supposed to flourish. Well, Please tell me where it says that in that passage. It doesn't. And the reason it doesn't say that is simple God never intended to limit the fact that you would flourish to one area of your life only. He meant every area of your life should be growing vigorously, blossoming, making steady progress, booming, prospering, thriving, flying high, or expanding. Yeah, that includes your marriage, includes your, your finances, includes the business you started. It's God's intention that everything you do, back to Psalms 1, prospers. Verse number 3 of Psalms 1. And so I want to read in John, 1 John 3 and 2, something that, that I think is key and instrumental to this whole thing about us flourishing, especially in every dimension of our life. And that is the verse I read last Sunday, Beloved, now. Are we the children of God? And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Speaking of flourishing, just want you to pray. This week or next week, we're supposed to be signing the 
contract, I mean, actually closing the contract on the sale of our property. Somebody shout and say amen. I want you to be in prayer about that. And uh, also the bank is right now within the home stretch of determining to underwrite the loan that we need to get started. So we've gone through the 90-day process. And for the life of me, I'll just say this. I don't understand why it takes 90 days to do an environmental survey. Really, to me, you got to go out there with a clipboard in his hand, look around, say, okay, yeah, that's done. But they take 90 days to do it and 90 days to walk through these processes. And, and so we have been patient. I want you to continue to give, especially right now. We need you to continue to give because we're in the home stretch of being able to get the loan underwritten. And um, so when we talk about flourishing, we mean every aspect of your life and including the church flourishing. That's just God's plan. And I want to speak today about why we flourish. In 1 John 3 and 2, again, I remind you, it says we are presently the children of God. We are now the children of God. But it hasn't yet been revealed what we shall be. And there is in this an indication that we are still, as I mentioned last week, in process. We haven't got there yet, and I'll show you in what ways that, that we're in process, but it means there is area of our life that is still open for improvement. Donnie and I laugh. He always comes by on Sunday morning. I ask him how he's, how he's doing, and, and Donnie will always smile and say, I, I, he came in the office this morning and asked me how I was doing. I said, blessed and highly favored. That's my standard answer. And because I am. And I asked, how are you doing? And Donnie said, blessed and highly favored also, Pastor. I said, how's everything going? And Donnie's standard answer, I love it. I love Donnie. And Donnie will always say, I'm doing great. There's always room for improvement, though. And, and, and we, we laugh together about that. How would you like to reach a place in your life where there's no more room for improvement? You're doing so well. Is there anybody here that would like to get so blessed you don't have room left over to, for, to put any more blessings? Isn't that what the Bible said is supposed to happen? Pour you out a blessing. There is not room enough to receive it. That's in your Bible. How many of you would like to see that happen in your life? Could I, could I hear an amen? Now that is a condition of flourishing, thriving, blossoming, booming, expanding until you fill up your present containers as it were. You have to find a way to increase your capacity to receive. Well, that's what I want to talk about today. I will tell you how to increase your capacity to flourish. My subject is flourishing because I'm learning to think like God. Flourishing because I'm learning to think like God. Father, would you talk to us right now and let your word come alive to us? We ask in Jesus' name. We need it so, so desperately in our lives because we know the profound influence that your word has and its capacity to bring transformation. Do that, I pray, in Jesus' name. Everybody shouted and said, Amen. How do you experience a life that is flourishing? Let me rephrase the question. If we aren't experiencing lives that are flourishing, then why aren't we? 
Because it said right there in the Bible we're supposed to. Isn't that what it said? I read it to you. They who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. If your life is not flourishing, to me, it seems the appropriate question might be to ask, not how can I, but why aren't I flourishing? Since the Bible says we should. And the answer to me is maybe pretty obvious. We are now the sons of God, but it doesn't yet appear what we shall be. There is still a dynamic tension, as it were, that exists from where we have come from as we get transformed into where we are going or who we are becoming. We're already the children of God, but there's a process that is taking place. Could it be that we haven't yet had our thinking sufficiently reformed? and then informed to reflect the things necessary to bring about that state of flourishing that God has promised. That's one reason that last week I emphasized the kingdom of God is about processes, right? And I'll just, just briefly mention this again. The church has put so much emphasis on the event of getting saved that we've neglected to teach that it's actually a process. Peter talked about that and said, receiving the end of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. He doesn't make salvation a single event. He makes it a process. You receive the end of your faith. Oh, you're saved right now. John's already told us that. But when you leave out the process part of it, you do something that is very detrimental to the development of your Christian life. And the church has put so much emphasis on the event of salvation that we have neglected what is equally important, and that is the renewing of our minds, or what we would call having our thinking reprogrammed with the principles of the Word of God. Being saved is only the beginning of that process. It certainly by no means signals its completion. After we're saved, we must then work to be, bring our thoughts into alignment with kingdom thinking and make no mistake we have to work to do so all of us were programmed in our past life as unbelievers and so let me take a moment now to just make important what God makes important and that is his word you can tell right away that the word of God is not being understood from the perspective of its importance in the Christian faith as it should be and that we do not make important the reprogramming of our thinking. You can tell that simply by looking at the church attendance habits of so many believers. According to all studies that are presently being done on current church trends, the number one problem we're facing in the church in the United States of America as we approach the year 2020 and as it is extrapolated to be an even increasingly more severe problem into the decade of the 2020s is that many believers do not feel that being in church every Sunday is of prime importance to them. Amen. I go to church once in a while. I even watch a little Christian TV and, uh, you know, that kind of a thing. And they think what they're doing is completing their obligation and because they view it as an obligation rather than a process, 
uh, by which they themselves are transformed, it's not high on their list of priorities. How important is the Word of God? If you wish to live a life that is flourishing, Jesus said it, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Please notice the verb tense that you see in, in, when it says that the word proceeds. It is the present tense, an act of proceeding. It's not the word that has proceeded or the word that shall proceed. It is the word that is proceeding every day. And Jesus makes the comparison that just like you need food every day to live, you need the word of God every day in your life to flourish. One day without food, two days, three days. You know what I'm talking about is going to happen when I say you're going to feel weak and you're going to feel a loss of energy and drive. And, and similarly, you go without the Word of God being indoctrinated into your spirit every single day, and your spirit man doesn't flourish or thrive. Part of the problem is that most believers feel that being a Christian is something they add to their present life. I'm a welder. I'm a bank teller. I am an executive, a CEO for a company. I'm a school teacher, a professor. I work as an operator in the plants. And now I just added to that. I, I'm also saved and, and, and I, I'm married and I've got kids. I just, I, I've added salvation as it were to my CV. And that's not what salvation is. You don't add salvation to your life. Salvation is a completely brand new life that you're beginning. Amen. You're not adding that to being a bank teller and being married and having two kids and working as, uh, you know, having a hobby, uh, painting or whatever. No, no, no. When you get saved, it's being born all over again. Amen. You start life at brand new. And you, this, the way you look at this process is going to determine your future. Little T. Boudreaux is 24 years old and still living at home. And Boudreaux and Marie are starting to worry about what he's going to do with his future. So Boudreaux tells Marie, Cher, let's do a little test. We're going to put a $10 bill, a Bible, and a bottle of booze on the table. And when T. Boudreaux comes in, we're going to be able to figure out what he's going to do. If he takes the $10 bill, he's going to be a businessman. If he picks up the Bible, he's going to be a preacher. But if he picks up the booze, I'm afraid he's going to be a bum the rest of his life like he is right now. Amen. And so they put the stuff out and hid in the closet. And when they heard T come in, they were looking through the keyhole. And T walked by the table, saw the $10 bill, picked it up, looked at it, put it in his pocket. Then he picked up the Bible, began to flip through it, put it under his arm. He saw the bottle of booze, took a healthy swig out of it, and walked off with the rest of the bottle, the $10 bill, and the Bible. And Marie and, and Boudreaux watching all this through the keyhole, Boudreaux sighs and said, my share, it's worse than I thought. Looks like our son is going to be a politician. Amen. Now, it's an election year, so I can get by with that, I think. 
The choices you're making right now will determine what your future is like. And did you ever consider this, that in the process of being reprogrammed in terms of your thoughts, the original sin had to do with man choosing to think differently than God thought. Everybody thinks the original sin was an act of rebellion. Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. The consequences of man's decision to hold on to thoughts that were different from those that God had expressed in the word he had given to man was that man went from living a life that was flourishing to a life that was the exact opposite opposite of that. He went from the Garden of Eden, I mean, where there was no poverty, there was no pain, there was abundance, everything he needed was there, no wailing sirens in the middle of the night, no crime rate, no courts, no penal institutions, no hospitals, no heart attack, no cancer, nothing like that in the Garden of Eden. He went from that a place of perfection to pain, loss, sickness, poverty, and even death. Why? Because his decision to continue to think a thought that was not in alignment with the thought God had just expressed about that tree produced an action in his life. Everybody thinks, as I said, that it was his act of disobedience that caused him to fall. That's not the whole story. Adam's act of disobedience was preceded with an ungoverned thought that was not brought into compliance and obedience to God. God's thinking. Are you hearing what I'm talking about? Religion is all about getting your physical actions to comply with the rules of the church. But what of the mind, beloved? Jesus' biggest complaint was not about sinners that were out there living their life in total reckless abandonment of any principles of virtue or morality. It was those people that were religious, saying we got it all together. We don't do what's wrong. And then Jesus looked at him and said, what about your thoughts? You haven't got your mind straightened out because if you look at your brother and you're angry without a cause, you've already murdered him in your heart without ever committing the physical deed. Not only that, you've heard it said a man should not commit adultery. But if you look at a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. What Jesus is saying, the higher order is to bring into compliance not just your actions, but bring into compliance and obedience your thinking. Oh, somebody in the building say amen. Ungoverned thoughts will always lead to acts of disobedience in our lives. A thought that is not corralled is not, and is not brought into compliance will lead to an act of disobedience. And that is because all acts of disobedience begin as they did with Adam, as ungoverned thoughts. Which is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, the pulling down strongholds casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself, what? Against the knowledge of God. Does that mean the knowledge there is a God? No. It's the knowledge God has. When you start thinking things differently than God sees them, you're in trouble. And he clarifies that in the next phrase by saying, bringing every thought 
into captivity to the obedience of Christ. As they did with Adam, ungoverned thoughts will lead to declension in your life. They will lead to loss and to a lack of fulfillment and prosperity and ultimately even a diminishing of or loss of destiny. What I'm going to do right now is give you one of the most important keys that you will ever receive in your entire life as to how to unlock your own future. If you grasp what I'm about to share with you, and if you use the principles that I'm going to give you as a guideline for directing your life, I promise you this is money back guarantee. I'm not even charging you for it. If it doesn't work, I'll give you something. Amen. You will be amazed at the transformation you will experience. I must be clear. So listen closely and say that simply knowing these truths won't change anything. You will have to work them, and work is the appropriate word. Amen. And I have to tell you up front that it won't be easy, but if you work these principles, they will change your life if you will apply what I'm about to share. Here's an amazingly simple but incredibly effective process to cause your life to become one that is flourishing. And unless you're perfectly happy the way you are right now, And as far as you can see into the foreseeable future, you you think you're going to remain the same way. I promise you, you're going to need what I'm going to share with you. If you don't need it personally, I'll tell you this. You know somebody who needs it right now. I want to specifically address three groups of people in this building today. Grandparents, parents, and young adults. I want to address these three groups of people, but for different reasons. The first two groups, I want to share this information with you because you are in a unique position in that you have people that answer to you or that you are providing a covering for by being a grandparent or a parent. You are responsible for them. And those that are underneath your care and your instructions will need this. They might not want it right now. I have to point out to you, I'm very much cognizant of the fact that when you're 17 years of age, you already know everything there is to learn and then some. Amen. And like Mark Twain said when he was 17, his dad was so dumb, he was embarrassed to be seen in the same room with him. But when he turned 19, he was amazed at how much his dad had learned in just two years. Amen. And you're going to find that's the case. And if you have children or grandchildren, there will come a time, I promise you, they're going to come to you and they're going to ask you for input and advice. Don't try to force it until they're ready to hear it. Because people only change for one of three reasons. Number one, they learn enough that they become inspired to change. Number two, they become empowered enough that they're able to change. Or number three, they hurt enough that they must change. And most of us, it's for the last reason. When we get tired of what we're going through and shooting our own foot off, that's when we're ready to listen to somebody. Or like Nietzsche said, what doesn't kill you ends up making you stronger. Amen. If you can survive it, but that's the big if. Somewhere in the course of your life, grandmom, granddad, mom, dad, the very ones you're trying to help right now that don't want to listen to you are going to come full circle and sit down and say, I need some help. And that's whenever you lay it out. 
Don't take an attitude and say, I tried to help you. You got yourself in there. You should have listened when you could. That's not the appropriate response. Amen. You can lead a horse to the water, but you can't make it drink to use an old Texas expression. Amen. So wait until there is a thirst created. And you need to know the process I'm going to share with you because you will be called upon to provide the information that it gives you. And then the third category was young adults. And I plead with you, young adults, don't be of such a mindset that you have to learn everything the hard way. Because some stuff you can't survive. You don't want to go through two or three or four marriages. Or, and, and there are folk that have. And, and the church is all about healing. You don't want to get broken and wounded. And young folks say, oh, I love the party until it messes up their life and costs them their job and their HIV or whatever. you know. And, and our, the church is ready to minister to whomever it is that is out there that is broken and in pain. But why should you put yourself through? that you know there's you know there's a line in that 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 room don't go in there hello somebody try to use your own common sense and judgment and I'm going to give you a paradigm a process that if you will learn it right now and work it it will change your life and put you years ahead of your peers, those who are around you, it will leapfrog you right over them and propel you so far down the road, they're going to need binoculars to be able to see you. Amen. And here we go. This is the process. Number one, situations, that is circumstances, needs, and desires always determine your thoughts. Could I hear an amen? Don't even pretend that isn't true. Oh, I'm so positive, I don't care what happens. Uh, you know, I, I'm praise God, I'm full of the word. Hallelujah to the Lamb, amen. You know, and I don't think negative thoughts. Oh, yeah? You let three or four things happen back to back, and let's see if it doesn't affect your thinking. You get a bad diagnosis, and the doctor says, we found a big gray area on the MRI, and we're afraid it's the big C. And tell me you don't think about it when you sit down and a cup of coffee after you leave. You're going to be thinking about it when you lay in your bed that night and the next morning when you wake up. In fact, you're going to wake up during the night and think about it because your circumstances affect your thoughts. Anybody that's ever been through the trauma of a lost job, a layoff, when they, they, they're barely making ends meet. Tell me it doesn't affect what you're thinking, especially if you've got kids at home and a wife that you're trying to take care of, and, and, and maybe you're trying to help the family as a mother, and oh yeah, it affects you. You go through the loss of a marriage and the loss of a child, and what's the old adage? My grandmama told me this years ago. She said, son, trouble always comes in threes. Amen. Never comes one off, amen. Always brings with it a couple of friends. Have you lived long enough to realize that's how life is? Because when one problem shows up, it isn't long until another shows up. And then another shows up. Why? There is a strategy the enemy is employing. He's trying to get your thoughts focused on the circumstance and the situation. And you cannot help but as a human being, when things happen, focus your thinking there. 
Of course you do, because these are significant things in your life. On the other hand, you, can, you, you also realize that if things are positive, it makes you upbeat and tempo. And I hope everything in your life is really upbeat and tempo right now. But I, pr I promise you, you're going to be thinking about that, going, good, man, sailing high, I'm soaring right now. Man, everything's going my way. You're thinking that while you're sitting here. But you know what happens with your thoughts? Your thoughts determine your emotions. Remember this, your thoughts determine your emotions. And so if your thoughts are negative, guess what your emotions are going to become? They're going to become negative. Ah, I'm talking to you. If you've had one bad thing after another happen, it cannot help but cause your thoughts to become somewhat blue. Amen. And you know, if the, on the other hand, everything is good, your thoughts are positive, and, uh, and, and your emotions go into an upswing. And I can tell you right now, the enemy is not going to sit still for real long and let that happen without trying to make it go the other direction. But here's the real thing that you need to understand. While situations, which would include your circumstances, your needs, your desires, while they determine your thoughts, and your thoughts determine your emotions, your emotions determine your attitude. The longer you think a thought, the deeper that emotion comes becomes. And you know what happened? The more that emotion is present, the more it becomes embedded in your psyche. You develop, as it were, a mental muscle um, memory. Can I hear somebody say praise the Lord right now? I did this in the first service. James is such an incredibly gifted uh, piano player. I just turned to him and I said, James, tell me about when you first began to play the piano. Was it easy? He said, no, he had to pick out, think about every note. Ding, 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 ding. And I said, do you even think about the notes now? No. That's because when someone has developed muscle memory and they've mastered a skill even as difficult as playing the piano, they can carry on and, and look at you and, hey, you, you see what oil's doing today? Hey, how about them Texans? Amen. And, and they're, they're, their mind is somewhere else. It's not focused the way that it used to be. Why? Because they've developed their skill set to the place that it's become muscle memory. And what happens with you? Your emotions is you end up having a preferred setting, if you please. And that that setting becomes your, your setting for your emotions. So your situations, stay with me now, I'm going to show it to you, determine your thoughts. And your thoughts determine your emotions. And the longer an emotion prevails, the more it develops into an attitude. And so if you've had a few things go wrong with you and your life and, and the boss has talked bad to you and you've got some problems and, and financial and there's some stress at home and some other things, and somebody cut you off in the traffic. Oh, my. fee fi fo fum The longer you think about it, the more you want to step on that accelerator and catch up with that person and show them your IQ. Amen. You know what I'm talking about. Come on, help me out. I'm being real right now. But if your emotions are upbeat, some little something like that doesn't shake you as much. And so your emotions determine your attitudes, and your attitudes in turn decide your self-talk and even your speech. 
whenever you start talking within your own heart and the situation has now produced your thoughts and they have become emotions and your emotions have developed into an attitude either good or bad your attitude in turn is going to affect the way you talk to yourself and you talk to others this is extremely important because what you create with your life is going to be what you say either vocally or within your own heart. It's with us as it was with God. And God said, let us make man in our image. You make things in your image by, by what you say within your own heart and what comes out of your mouth. Amen. And somebody say, praise the Lord. And your self-talk and your speech in turn determine your behavior or your actions. Now this is where I'm really going with this. Because what you say is end up, it ends up deciding what you will do in your life. And so if your self-talk is negative, your behavior is not going to be the best. Like the guy that just cut you off that you're now chasing on the freeway so you can tell him how your IQ consists of one number, amen. And you go figure that out yourself. Roll your window down and all that other kind of stuff and get into a shouting match. And this is Texas, baby. There may be a gun in that car, amen. You won't be careful. Your speech determines your behavior, and your behavior dictates your habits because your behavior is simply a habit, rather, that is simply behavior that is done over and over and over to now we have moved from emotional muscle memory, as it were, to physical muscle memory. Am I helping anybody right now? Amen. Your behavior determines your habits. Your habits determine your lifestyle. And your lifestyle molds your character. Watch it. And your character determines your destiny. Why is this so important? Because most of us don't know how to change this continuum. We don't know what part of this to tweak. And so if our lifestyle is out of whack, you know what we do? We go work on lifestyle. You can't change your lifestyle by working on your lifestyle. It doesn't ever work like that. That's, that's unsuccessful nearly every time it's tried. That's why most rehabs have a recidivation rate. Are you re ready to hear this? Of up to 96%. Of, in other words, only 4%. They claim 4 to 20% of the people that go into rehab are all there are that really recover. Why? Because so many times they're working on their lifestyle. And so you're trying to straighten up your lifestyle. And you can't do that. you got to go all the way back up to step number two, which is your thoughts. Why didn't I say step number one? Because you don't get to vote on step number one. This is a fallen world, and you're going to have trouble in the world you live in. Man that is born of a woman is of few days and full of trouble. There's going to be some stuff happen that you don't like in your life. But what you can control is the way you think about it and how you look at it. Amen. What am I really saying here today? I'm saying that if you want to change any of the things that come underneath the, 
the, the line where it says your thoughts determine your emotions. If you want to change your emotions, if you want to change your attitudes, if you want to change your self-talk, if you want to change your behavior, if you want to change your habits, if you want to change your lifestyle, if you want to change your character, the only place that you can begin and expect a measure of success is step number two. Don't try to go change the situation. Most of us believe that we have to try to change the circumstance. That's not right. You can't alter some things in life. Some you can. The, the 7.30 service this morning, Brother Simon, one of our ushers, celebrated with me that today is the ninth year. Today is the ninth anniversary when he was declared completely free from cancer. He was diagnosed with cancer some number of years. Y'all go ahead and give the Lord a praise. Now, I believe that God can use any number of things to promote healing. He can use doctors. He can use medicine. He can use hospitals. But guess what? I wouldn't recommend you do this. But when Brother Simon was diagnosed with cancer, he said, I'm not going through that. I'm going to trust God. And if God heals me, great. But I'm not going through all that. I've seen too many people suffer. God healed him, and he's cancer-free for nine years without any medical treatment and without any medicine and without any hospitals. There is a God that can change your situation. You say, well, how can I experience that? You don't experience it by going to step number one and trying to change the situation. You go to step number two and you change your thoughts. Cancer is not my Lord. Jesus is my Lord. By his stripes, I am healed. I don't care what the life expectancy is of someone with this diagnosis. What you're doing is developing thoughts of faith. And the kingdom of God and everything God does is predicated upon our faith in him. Amen. So you go back, you change your thoughts, and that changes your emotions. Here's what most of us will do. Oh, 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 Jesus. Bad diagnosis. I'm going to get laid off from my job. I, I just got served divorce papers, you know, or whatever. And our emotions fall into the cellar. And they stay there long enough that they become an attitude. And then somebody comes along and says, you know your attitude's really slipping right now. And you say, okay, I'm going to try to fix my attitude. You can't. Not unless you go back up to your thoughts. You don't fix a bad attitude by working on the attitude. You don't fix a problem with anger by working on anger. Hello. You don't fix a problem with drug addiction by going down to lifestyle. You don't. you got to go back to your thoughts. You hear what I'm talking about? You don't need that stuff. You're mighty in the eyes of God. You're a child of God. You're more than an overcomer. You're made in his image. You have value in the eyes of God. Amen. He loves you. Why do you need all this other stuff? Amen. And so you change your thoughts to change your emotions. I'm just about done. Each one of these steps sets up and determines what follows it. If you're self-talking, even your conversation with others, it is negative. It is a sure bet that your emotions are not as they should be. 
You may be fooling everybody out there and smiling, but if your self-talk and your expressions to others, what you say to others is negative, something going on in here is out of balance. If you're struggling with an attitude, uh, I'm telling you, you have to deal with the thoughts. If you're struggling with, with, with your self-talk, go back to the thoughts. If you're struggling with your behavior, go back to your thoughts. If your habits are bad, let, let me give you another example. All right, say I want to quit smoking. Not me, because I quit many years ago. Amen. Just thought I'd let you know that in case I don't go out and sit outside my car smoking a cigar when I get through preaching. And just, just want to make that clear. Amen. I may, I may, I may have some, some warped sides to my personality, but the one thing I don't want to do is give myself cancer. You know, thank you very much. It's going to have to catch me while I'm running from it. Amen. I'm not looking for it. I don't want its address. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Amen. But if I'm going to try to quit smoking and break a bad habit, the worst thing in the world is to focus on the smoking. I'm going to quit smoking. My God. And this is why they tell you that it takes at least 90 days to start another habit, a, a new habit. Amen. A good habit. And it... it and, 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 and to be able to get going in the right direction with your life. Actually, it's longer than that. To really create a new habit takes upwards sometimes of eight to nine months. The statistics are that the 90-day thing is not really accurate. Amen. To reactivate a habit you've lost, they say, takes 30 days. That's not true either. It actually takes an average of about 48 last time I looked at the information. And so what I'm doing is I'm focusing on this habit now. I'm a, and I'm counting the days to the end of the 90 days. I got, I got 89 days and 23 hours and 15 minutes left. And, and I, no, it's not going to work like that. You got to go back and change your thinking. Amen. Don't focus on the habit. Focus on the thought process. Am I making sense to anybody right now? That's how you break the hold of things in your life. People often blame their situations, as I pointed out, on their circumstances. But since you can't change your situations, change your thoughts. And here's the amazing thing, is that when you begin to change your thoughts, are you ready? Your situations begin to change. Why? Because the thought level is where the faith dimension is located. And when you have faith, God can make anything happen. Hallelujah. Anything to break the cycle, this is what you've got to do. Why is it important that we think like a heavenly father? Amen. Someone just the other day asked me why I believe it was, and I mentioned this last week, that we don't see more of the demonstration of God's power and things like healing cancer or HIV or raising the dead as the early church witnessed. I personally believe it is because we have strayed from possessing as the church and having the heart of God. And therefore, we have lost his hands as well. That whole paradigm right there, when our thoughts get off track, so do our emotions. And then our attitudes come next. And then our self-talk and our speech is affected. And then our behavior is negatively impacted. And then bad habits crop up. And these habits dictate our lifestyle. And you go to the next one, and your lifestyle is what molds your character. And your character is what determines your destiny.
And let me say it like this. Without God's character, you are a character. And so am I. Without God's thoughts, you won't develop his heart. And without his heart, you will not have his character. And without his character, you cannot have his power. How do we know that our thinking has been renewed or changed? Simple. When we see the fruit of the Spirit growing in our lives. Why? Because as I've already shared with you, the fruit of the Spirit is the character of God. The love, the joy, the peace, the gentleness. This is the character of God. So what then is the character of God like and what are his characteristics? I'll talk about that starting the next time. But until we develop God's character in us, we are still subject to the the desire to please others. We're prone to compromise when we should be strong and to cave in where we should be standing. In a word, we will care more about pleasing men than we do pleasing God. And so Adam wanted to please Eve because his thoughts were out of of alignment with God. Eve wanted to please the serpent. And together they all began to think thoughts that were not in compliance with the thoughts that God had expressed where? In his proceeding word that he spoke to Adam, which is why you need the word of God. A proceeding word. I'll say this. When I say a proceeding word, it is the word that's coming right now. The word three days ago is not what you need. You need the word right now. Because the word right now is for the situation you're in right now. Amen. The word three days ago is a three-day-ago word. Amen. That's not helping you. That's like food that's been in the icebox too long. You need something fresh right now. And I'm not speaking disparagingly about the word of God when I say that it's a three-day old word. No, God knew what he was saying when he said, you live on the word that's coming from my mouth right now. Amen. And so if you don't have that word and it's not reprogramming your thinking, you'll find yourself always subject to the whim and fancy of other people and their influence. You'll be subject to peer pressure. Ephesians 6, 5, and 7, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Paul says, don't be men pleasers. Change your thinking. And until you change your thinking, you're wanting to fit in and be accepted. And Paul said, the only one you need to be pleasing is God Almighty. Because when your character is like his, no one can find fault with that. Amen. You say, but I, that's to bond servants. I'm not a bond servant. Oh, really? If your thinking is not in compliance with God, you are in bondage. That's what a stronghold is, as identified by Paul in 2 Corinthians 10. Amen. You need to bring those thoughts into captivity. And I close by looking at Saul. King Saul. 1 Samuel 15. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your word, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. 
But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. What happened was, is God gave Saul a word. I hate the Amalekites and everything they own. Destroy it. But Saul never brought those thoughts into compliance with God's. And he continued to love what God did not love. I'm talking to you right now. And Samuel purposefully delayed his appearing. And Saul spared the fatlings, the fattest of the flock, and even King Agag. And when Samuel showed up, he said, Saul, what is this? You've sinned. And Saul said, because I have sinned, I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. What did he do? He became a man pleaser because he got his emotions out of control. What happened was the circumstance was unhealthy. People wanted to keep these things, and Saul's responsibility was to tell them, change the way you think, and look at this the way God does. But instead, he wanted to be accepted, and his thoughts were, oh my God, I'm in trouble here now. My people are going to reject me as being their king. I'm going to lose the kingdom. And you know what happened? Out of that grew an attitude, or emotion rather, of fear. And the fear became an attitude. And he began to be stressed out. Oh, I'm going to lose the kingdom. I'm going to lose the kingdom. I better, I better not do what God said. I better give in to what the people are demanding. And you know what ended up happening? Because he allowed the situation to determine his thoughts. And his thoughts to determine his emotions. And his emotions to determine his attitudes. And his attitudes right on down the line ended up impacting his actions, and the result was he lost his destiny. Put that paradigm back up there again, Robert, as I'm done. Your thoughts determine your emotions. Your emotions determine your attitudes. What he should have done is gone right back up to the top and said, I'm changing the way I think about it. Amen. And he could have still remained as king of Israel. Life application points, get as much of the word of God into your spirit as you can. You can't get too much of the word. Can I hear somebody say amen? And to do that, hear as much of the word of God as you can. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by a word of God. You need the spoken word of God in your life. Amen? You need to hear the word of God. And then number three, work on confronting and changing the way you think. You're saved, no doubt about it, but work on changing the way we think until our thoughts reflect the thoughts of God. So I go back to my title. I'm flourishing because I'm learning to think like God.